Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello, Arizona. Welcome to the Legitimate Podcast with your hosts, Mike and Rochelle Poulton, where we share our legitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. I'm Mike Poulton. I'm the managing partner of Poulton & Naroyan, a law firm here in town that does business, real estate, and estate planning law. I'm also a real estate investor and inventor and entrepreneur and do a few other things. And this is my lovely wife, Rochelle. Hi, I'm Rochelle Poulton. I'm your favorite consumer rights attorney. And uh, I'm managing partner over at X-Firm, who is also the sponsor of our show. And today we've got a fun topic. We're talking about reverse mortgages. So over 60, should you do traditional versus a reverse mortgage? And with us, we have our very special guest, Jim Hostler with High Tech Lending. Jim, why don't you tell our guests, all our listeners, all about your awesomeness. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Mike and Rochelle, for having me. I have been a mortgage professional for almost 30 years. I guess I got the gray hair now to prove it, right? <laughs> and uh, about five years ago, I got bit by the reverse mortgage bug. I thought before that they were not, and they were not a good loan in many ways. And about five years ago, I started looking into them. And now I'm at a point where that's all I do. I've written a book on them, and I think, well, like everything, they're not for everybody, but they're for about, statistically, about four or five times more people than actually have them. 2013, they have been overhauled, if you will, a lot, or revised a lot, and that those revisions have all pretty much, no, I'm going to say exclusively, been to the benefit of the senior homeowner. Mm -hmm. So there's a beginning. So in, we'll get into Excellent. it in detail. Yeah, I guess the summary and what we're going to end up getting into in the show is that a lot of people who heard about reverse mortgages decades ago and maybe knew about them in their, their middle age or their younger years thought it was a, a scam, not something to get involved with, not a good idea. And really, the reverse mortgages of today are not the same deal. It's not the same product that, that existed back then. And so a lot of those people, if they're retirement age now, maybe you ought to take a fresh look at this and meet with somebody like yourself to see if it might actually be a good choice for them at this point. Yeah, th yeah thanks, Mike. And we actually have three generations that we're talking to right now. Mm -hmm. And that is you've got the great or the silent generation, which anybody above 75 resides there. And there's like $13 trillion that they have in assets that are, will be passed down to the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. What Gen X is behind us, I'm a baby boomer, Gen X behind us, well, they're not old enough yet because we've got like another nine years that we're having 10,000 people a day turn 62. But <laughs> yeah, on average, 10,000 people a day will turn 65, 62, 65, same thing for the next nine years. Wow. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. every one of those and people so just, could be considering whether a reverse mortgage may be a good fit for them at this point. Yeah. As long as they're a senior homeowner and, and one of them is 62, you know, the spouse doesn't have to be 62. And it is, there's never been a better time because it's not like a traditional mortgage. You buy a home and you say, I have 5%, 10%, 20% down, you buy the home. With a reverse mortgage, they say, how old is the youngest person? What's the value of your home? And as interest rates go down, they give you more equity, more cash out of your home. Mm -hmm. What's happened today? Interest rates are at historic lows. 
that factor gives you more money. Values, home values, oh my God, in Phoenix, once again, they're back up and they're in great, they're very high. That would give you more money. And people are getting older every day, right? better <laughs> than the option, right? But when you line those factors up, you're getting more money out of your home at the lowest interest rate, somewhere around 3%. It varies a little bit. And when, as I've said many, many times, it's like, when's the best time to borrow money when you don't need it? <laughs> so it's That's great to sure. be proactive, right? Because when you think about the senior homeowners, they oftentimes, you know, life shows up. And is that thing medically that's occurred to them? Is that a loss, loss of a spouse? Well, when those life events show up, guess what? Life goes on and you've got the stress of dealing with, I, I worked with a lady that had fifth, just shy of $50,000 of medical bills that she had to write a check for last year. You know, that that hurt. And she was looking at a reverse mortgage to get some of that money back and replenish her savings. Absolutely. Sadly, I've gotten too many death certificates. Well, when those events happen, that's stressful. That That's the emotional side. But life continues and you've got the financial aspect as well, right? So if you can alleviate or diminish the financial impact of that by borrowing the money up front or having the funds available up front, and now you have to, now you get choice. Now you have a choice to make instead of having to react under stress. It's a big deal to be, to be able to do that that way. Yes. That kind of financial flexibility is definitely important. And what we'll get into today on the show is uh, not only what all those options are and how a reverse mortgage may be able to help people, but also what the other types of mortgage loans are and how they're different. So people can understand what all the options are. But first, before we get into the heart of this, uh, let's do the rackets. Yay. So on this show, um, every week we talk about some kind of scam that's going on. We call them the rackets. And you may have heard some of our prior episodes that were dedicated to nothing but the rackets. That's always a good time. We do those periodically. But today, our racket of the day, are coronavirus face mask exemption cards. So you can go online and buy a card that you're supposed to carry around with you that says that you are exempt from having to wear a face mask in public for coronavirus. Well, it's a racket. There is no such thing. It's just a card somebody made up and they're selling it to you. It has absolutely no legal effect. Uh, and in fact, it's worse than worthless because you can't just go around claiming that you have some kind of exemption to laws that are generally applicable to everybody. You may be wondering, what about people who genuinely can't wear a face mask for some reason? Well, here's how this works. In the United States, we have a federal law called the Americans with Disabilities Act, and almost every state has its own state version of the ADA. The gist of these laws, they're really complicated, it's very long, the interpretations are extensive, there's tons of case law on it, but the gist of it, the overall idea is that if you have some kind of a medical condition or a physical or mental disability that prevents you from being able to do something or cope with a circumstance that most people are able to do or cope with, then in general, you don't have to do it. You're exempt from whatever that requirement is, regardless of how it came up, regardless of whether it's a, a state law, a federal law, a local ordinance, or a rule at some business, or just your boss telling you to, whatever it is, if you have a condition that makes it so you can't, then you don't have to. As long as 
the result of this isn't totally unreasonable. It has to be a reasonable accommodation. This change, the exemption that you're claiming, has to be reasonable. So you can't be imposing a huge burden on somebody else that's really expensive. You can't be causing a ridiculous outcome in public. I mean, there are all kinds of examples of this all over the place. But bottom line is, it's got to be reasonable. If you can't do something and it's reasonable for you to not do it, uh, then you don't have to. Well, now, you may be wondering, how does this relate to coronavirus face masks? Well, exactly the same legal standard is going to apply to that. If you genuinely have a disability that prevents you from being able to wear a mask over your face, then you're not going to have to wear a mask over your face. It doesn't really matter what the law says or what uh, even a store rule says. Um, You're going to be exempt from that. But here's the catch. There are very few conditions that would result in that outcome. I can't really even think of any off the top of my head. There might be some uh, respiratory illnesses or uh, breathing disorders or anatomical configuration issues with your airway or your face that could make it so that it would be dangerous or impossible for you to wear a mask. But let me tell you something. If you fall into that category, you already know it for sure. Because this is something that you're getting extensive medical care for. Like, you've got a team that, that is dealing with your medical problems because there is nothing simple that causes this outcome. There is nothing simple or common that makes it so that you can't wear any kind of a mask on your face. Let's be realistic here. So the only people who are genuinely exempt from these mask-wearing requirements are people who already know for sure that they're exempt from that. And they're talking to their doctors about it, and they're dealing with it. Uh, And on another thing, a lot of those people are also going to be extra susceptible to coronavirus for those exact same reasons. So they're not incentivized to avoid protection. Most people who can't wear a mask would much rather wear a mask. So if you're a person who just thinks it's uncomfortable, thinks you can't breathe very well with it on, just don't want to, thinks it's, it's a load of crap and it doesn't matter and you shouldn't have to, well, suck it up and put your mask on because you're not exempt. Uh, and don't buy the card. Don't buy the card on the internet <laughs> and then carry it around and try to claim that you've got some kind of a special exemption because you do not. And nobody is going to appreciate that. And probably you're the kind of person this law is going to be enforced against pretty aggressively. So let's not test that. Uh, <laughs> We're going to get more on that later. <laughs> that is the racket for, for today. today. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on into the LBL moment. This is our law, business, and life. And today's law moment, we're going to talk about identity theft and how to resolve it because I have gotten a lot of calls about people who are becoming victims of identity theft. They are looking at their credit and discovering credit cards that are opened in their name or a bunch of charges that they don't recognize. And I just wanted to do a quick PSA on how to solve this problem. First up, If you think you are a victim of identity theft, you have to look at your credit report. Like, start there. If you see things that you don't recognize, if you suspect that there is something there that you believe is yours or belongs to you or whatever the case may be, you need to hurry up and freeze your credit. If you don't remember buying those three cars last year, then, you know, (laughs) maybe they're not yours. (laughs) Yes. And that happens. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really quite tragic when it does. So if you see things on your credit report that aren't yours, go ahead and save yourself some time and money and put a freeze on your credit report. You can just Google freeze my TransUnion, freeze my Experian, freeze my Equifax, and you will find the links to do it for free. 
and do that. And if you need to apply for credit, it's kind of a pain in the butt because you have to undo the freeze, but do that and just hurry up and protect yourself. And maybe you don't buy anything for a while while you're fixing your identity theft issue. But after you have done the freeze, it's important to file a police report. Um, The police report is necessary for credit card companies to complete a fraud investigation. You should immediately call your credit card company the second you suspect that fraud is on the account and start disputing the charges that do not belong to you. Or if it's not your account, inform them that you didn't open the account. But you're going to need a police report to escalate that if they deny your claim or if they're skeptical about what you're telling them. And you need to just call your local police department. It is not an emergency. Do not call 911. They will instruct you to probably file the report online, which is super convenient, very safe, very uh, contactless. So go ahead and do that. And um, once you get the report, start doing some disputes of these accounts that you think are fraudulent and consult with an attorney or someone else that helps people with identity theft restoration because If you catch it early, it's not that big of a deal to fix. If you catch it late and you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars, you may end up in bankruptcy and it's a big deal. So fixing identity theft can be pretty straightforward. So just to recap, check your credit, put a freeze, file a police report, and start disputing. All right, got questions, we've got answers, you can email me at hello at xfirmlaw.com. The business moment. Business lending and business credit. Yes. So we wanted to talk about this briefly. Rochelle usually deals with personal finance and personal credit, but many of her clients are business owners, self-employed people, and also people who own companies and employ others. And for self-employed people and business owners, it can be very important to check your business credit as well. Uh, those of us who have businesses know that when your business borrows money or does a, you know, an open account with a supplier, that doesn't show up on your personal credit. Even if you've personally guaranteed it, it still doesn't report to your credit. So where does that show up? Well, it shows up on business credit if they choose to report it. And that's totally separate. It's connected to the name of your business or the legal identity of your business. And there are a number of different business credit reporting agencies, and you can check them online. Yes. So you can actually pull a free copy of your business credit report through nav.com. That's N-A-V.com. And see what's going on with your business credit report. You would be surprised. Identity theft definitely happens there too. So if you see UCC filings, you may want to like call an attorney and find out what to do about that. But it's important to check your business credit as well, especially if you're looking for business financing. Business financing looks at your business credit, but it also looks at your personal credit. And you want to look good in both places to get the best rates possible. And if you're lucky, maybe even get out of having to file a or sign a personal guarantee for a business credit, whatever. Not you're not going to get out of that on a credit card, but you know, for some types of lines of credit or um, loans, uh, commercial leases, trade credit, open accounts with suppliers, companies like that. If you have a decent business credit history, often you won't have to guarantee it, or they'll give you much better terms. Yes, higher limits and more time to pay. Uh, give you a better uh, discount for early pay, things like that. So it actually can save you a fair bit of money, especially if you're in a business that has relatively high cost of goods sold and you work with supplier credit. Uh, it may be worthwhile to really keep an eye on your business credit and, and see if you can uh, save some money by improving it. Exactly. Especially now, people are starting to ask me questions about their businesses, especially the businesses that are doing well right now and have figured out how to adapt in the world of COVID-19. What do we do for business financing moving forward? Well, it's going to get a lot tighter. That's kind of the way it's going to be. So you got to really look good. 
on paper. And that's the best place to do it is to find out where you are and how to generate a score. A good place to start generating a score is maybe opening, like you said, a line of credit somewhere. Supplier um, accounts. Pick mm-hmm. the, the Staples, big players. Home Depot. Well, there's that. I was going to say the big players in your industry. You yes. Know, if it's HVAC, go to United Refrigeration, whatever the, the big players are, supply houses who sell goods. They report typically mm-hmm. yep. um, and they pull business credit and they have highly variable terms depending on your credit worthiness. So yep. that's a, a good place to start to save money and improve your cash flow that way with business credit. Net 30 is Net your 30, friend. Net 90 is better. Yes. <laughs> start where you can. Um, and last but not least, life, our life moment. Back to so, masks. Back to masks. We'll make this fairly quick. A lot of people are asking, and there's been a lot of debate online, can the government force you to wear a mask? Yeah, they can. Yes, Don't they make can. Them. Don't make them. We don't want more laws. Come on. (laughs) Yes. A lot of the debate over this comes down to really uh, pretty minute procedural issues. It's Mm -hmm. a question of whether a governor, for example, can issue an edict, an executive order that says everybody in the state has to wear a mask in public. And a question of whether a mayor can do the same thing within the, the bounds of their town. And here's what I would say to that as an attorney. I don't know. And I don't care. Uh, It's variable everywhere. That depends on the state. It depends on the exact details of the restriction. It depends on the exact procedural status of the whole situation. Is there legislative approval? Uh, Is a legislature in session? Is there a declared emergency? All kinds of factors play into that. But here is the bottom line. There will always be an acceptable, enforceable procedural route by which the state can do this. There's always a right way. And in fact, there are probably a dozen different right ways that any given state or municipality can legally require you to wear a mask in public. So they're going to be able to get it done. Uh, And if there is any kind of a legal challenge that's successful, it's going to be a very limited procedural challenge, and they're going to be able to get around it and achieve the goal of requiring you to wear that mask. So let's get past the question of whether this is a violation of your constitutional rights and whether the government has authority to do it. They can make you wear pants and they can make you wear a mask. That's literally the same thing from a legal perspective. The reasoning and the legal rationale behind it uh, is going to be the same either way. And believe it or not, the pants question has been litigated extensively. Those laws have been tested. These arguments have been made. And the result is that, yes, the government can make you wear things. Um, Also, private business owners always can. Uh, Anyone who owns a business or owns their own house can require that in order for people to come inside, they have to wear a mask or anything else. They can require that you wear a silly party hat, whatever they want, <laughs> private property. Uh, <laughs> that's how our country works. So if a store has a mask policy, even if there isn't a law in place that requires it, if the store says you need a mask, you need a mask. And indeed, uh, you can be arrested for trespassing uh, if you've been told to wear a mask and you don't and you refuse to leave. Uh, no two ways about that. It's not questionable. So Let's just respect everybody's private property rights, respect everybody's bodily integrity, protect each other, and get along. <laughs> yes. And on that front, bad facts make bad law. Yes. <laughs> Trying to fight people on the mask, you're going to create some bad law. No yeah. one wants to expand governmental authority. So let's just, let's stop fighting that losing battle, all right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's not come up with more reasons for the government and the courts to justify control. We'll just all cooperate and, and keep it unofficial if we can. Please. <laughs> Let's stop debating that. All right. That's our LBL moment for the day. And now we are back to Jim and the topic of mortgages. 
so let's get into this. In our in our introduction here, we were talking about who reverse mortgages are for. Jim, can you just review for us what the rules are? Uh, what, are what are the rules about who can, who is allowed to have a reverse mortgage? Well, thank you. I like your LBO moment. That was good. Thank you for that information. <laughs> <laughs> With some humor in there, too. Um, so... A reverse mortgage is a HECM. It's a home equity conversion mortgage. HUD, Housing and Urban Development, they're the godfather that writes the rules and then FHA insures it. So that being said, HUD's guidelines state that a borrower must be 62. If you're a couple, the youngest one must be 62. Legally, if you're 18 and you married the 62 year old, you qualify. <laughs> Two, it has to be your primary residence. And three, you must maintain it. And that comes in two different ways. One way is you have to live there. It's got to be your primary residence. Maintaining it means physically the house is nice, it's maintained. And secondly, it's paying property taxes, your homeowner's insurance. And if you have like homeowner's association, then that's um, paid on time as well. And that's on a macro level, it's got to be in first position as far as a lien is concerned, just like when you get a buy a home. It's a first lien position. By the way, surprisingly, the number one myth that people ask me is, I lose my home. I don't own my home. You always own your home. Always. It is a first lien against the property exactly the same in that respect as if you got a mortgage on your property. It's a lien on your property. You still own the home. Yeah, I think a lot of people are afraid of signing their home over to someone else or, you know, doing a scam or being a victim of a scam. So you want to talk about briefly, quickly, the changes in the laws that happened back in 2012 with reverse mortgages that made them so much better? Well, if you look back in 2011, it was MetLife, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo were the three largest uh, originators of reverse mortgages. Well, that was before, yeah, before we had to be licensed. I'm licensed, bonded, insured. And what happened was, if you think about MetLife, well, you have a home. You have a lot of equity. If I get you a reverse mortgage, I can also get you an annuity. And I'm going to take all this money out of your home, and I'm going to get you an annuity. And by the way, the person that did that oftentimes apparently did it unethically because the federal government stopped it. And they, you know, they got paid very nice. Well, now, Bank of America, MetLife, and Wells Fargo no longer do reverse mortgages. They're out of it. So they've one of the things is they protected the spouse when the spouse isn't 62. It used to be that if I'm 62, if my spouse was 60 and I got a reverse mortgage, fast forward 10, 20 years and I die, then they would, they, the government, the HUD would show up in essence and say, choose, sell your home and give me the money or just give me the money the loan's got to be paid off. That borrow, that spouse was not protected, and now they are. So that's one thing they've now currently, it's an insured loan. So even though that's 2% of the value up front, that can be a little bit steep, but basically all financial products have a cost. And one of the benefits to that is, we were talking before we went on air about NEG-AM. Well, a reverse mortgage is a product unlike anything else in the United States. There is no other product like it. One of its features is it's a non-recourse loan. So if you, and there's no end date, so we're so used to getting a 15 or a 30-year mortgage, 
I'm 62. If I got a 30-year mortgage, okay, I pay it off at 92. With a reverse mortgage, God bless. You want to live it to be 120? Go for it. As long as it's your primary residence, you can stay in your home forever. Well, what happens if 2008 comes back around? And now what you owe is greater than the loan balance. It's federally insured. Write the check. Or if you're getting a monthly income, you still get the monthly income. So that's one of the great big features of a reverse mortgage, again, unlike anything else, because even though it has the mortgage insurance, if you think about your traditional mortgages, when you don't put 20% down, the bank says, hey, you have to have mortgage insurance and you're paying for it. You're right. And who's protected there? The lender is. Because if I stop making a mortgage payment and the bank takes my home back, if they're short money, they're going to cash in on that mortgage insurance and they're going to get their money. It did nothing about me. Conversely, on a reverse mortgage, that mortgage insurance protects me as the homeowner because if my contract says you can get this much money, but it's worth, but what I can get in money is worth more than the value of my home, write the check. And, and if I die, and I owe more than the value of my house, a couple things. If I have an heir and they want to purchase the home, they can purchase it for 95% of the then appraised value. Well, if that's not enough to cover the debt, it's okay. The insurance kicks in and covers the difference. Wow. If Very I, interesting. Yeah. And then from a financial planning perspective, I'm not a financial planner, but this is a financial planning tool. If there's a line of credit, and the line of credit is now a half million dollars. Oops, home's only worth 400. Well, when the loan closed, how much the line of credit is was determined by the value of the home. As the ink dries when the loan's closing, they uncouple that. And now the line of credit grows contractually regardless of the value of the home. And if it gets to be upside down, write the check. That's what the insurance is there for. So it is, again, a what I was saying earlier, it's a fantastic financial planning tool because in the future, cash is king. And if you have access to, you know, I've had a couple clients, one comes to mind, had a half million dollar home, they're in their 60s, they're not taking social security and they tapped into their home and they have just shy of a quarter of a million dollars of a line of credit. They're not using it. But they've but got it. They've got it. And unlike, and don't ever confuse it with the HELOC, so home equity lines of credit that they gave away, you know, back in 2000, like crazy. Because you were breathing. Yeah, right. But smoke in the mirror, you qualify. And those, um, you generally it's interest only for a period of time. And then they say, well, we like you. Now we're going to amortize it. And your payment doubles. Well, they can cancel it. Uh, or reduce can, your limit, close it. Yeah. yeah. Demand um, payment in full today. Yes. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, <big time. laughs> My wife and I had one back in like 2008, and it was a debit card associated with it. And we went to, I went to pay for dinner, and they said denied. I'm like, I don't think so. There's like thousands of dollars available. Chase went through everybody because 2008, right? They locked them up. So that, unlike those HELOCs, the line of credit on a reverse mortgage contractually grows every month, regardless of the value of the home. 
So in the future, you know, like I said, if you need that for healthcare and look at, you know, 91% of us want to age in place. We just want to go to sleep one day and not wake up, right? We don't want to move. And that's fair. But sometimes that takes a lot of money to do that. And one of those things is instead of going to, I'm from Iowa, we call them nursing homes. Here it's assisted living. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't even remember some of the names for them, but yeah, I do, it, I do know it's awful expensive. You know, my mom. Five, six grand a month. Yeah. For my somewhere mom, decent. <laughs> yeah. Or you give me like, you know, $300,000 and you can come in the front door and I'll make sure I'll take care of you until I take out the back door. It's a lot of money. Well, instead of that and depleting your cash, a lot of times you don't need that 24-hour care. What you can do instead is get in-home health care to the point that maybe, you know, that's no longer good enough. But that's a lot less expensive. Well, what happens if you had a line of credit already established for, you know, $100,000, $200,000, and you could just say, hey, wire the money over and I'll take care of my in-home health care. I'll put a bathroom in or bathtub in. I can walk in so I don't have to worry about falling. I'll get my home updated and remodeled so that I can put the ramp on the front or whatever you need. Mike, you were talking about America with Disability Act. Whatever you need to take care of yourself in your home, is it wheelchair accessible? All of that, maybe you can do that with your line of credit from your reverse mortgage. So the, the beautiful aspect about it is, you know, we're talking about that. The beautiful aspect about a reverse mortgage is its flexibility. How about this? You know, you're 65 years old. What about taking some money out and going buying a $200,000 motor coach, spending 10 years seeing the world? And by the way, between the projected appreciation of your home and what it's going to look like, you can do drive that coach for like 10 years and sell it and break even. And that's a true life scenario of a colleague of mine in California. But have fun with it too, you know? <laughs> Not about doom and gloom of getting old and dying. So, so yeah. in a sense, these kinds of reverse mortgage arrangements let you take advantage of the appreciation in your home's value while you're still living in it. Yes. Rather yes. than having to sell the asset in order to recoup the gains on it as an investment, you get to benefit from the appreciation of the house while still living in it. But without all of the risks associated with a traditional HELOC, like we were talking about, where you can get stuck having to pay it back, uh, and it's kind of a, an aggressive loan to subject yourself to. In this instance, what you're talking about here, you take a house that you already own, uh, you borrow against it, but you don't ever actually have to pay that cash back until, well, you never have to. Your, your children are going to have to wrap that up. But yeah. <laughs> but it's easy for them to wrap it up uh, by selling the property after your death. So I wanted to touch on, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Mike, you brought up one of the most critical pieces for people to understand. And that is, they say, oh my God, I'm going to run out of equity. I just had this conversation with a 76-year-old lady this morning. We don't know what the crystal ball is for appreciation, but we can go on the past and it's been pretty good. It's about five and a half percent this year right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a $400,000 home at 5%, I wake up in a year and I'm $20,000 richer because of appreciation, right? If I had a $200,000 mortgage against that, and I'm paying 3% on that, then that's $6,000 of interest that has accrued on my loan. But hold it, I'm $20,000 ahead in appreciation. 
I'm $6,000 more owing more in interest. Sell the home. I'm still $14,000 ahead. And yep. by the way, I have to give, and I do, every time an amortization schedule out to the bar youngest borrowers age 100, showing the projected okay. amount of equity. So excellent, excellent point, Mike. Thank you for bringing that up. Sorry, Rochelle. Go ahead. Cool. Thank you. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was actually a traditional mortgage and the types of mortgages that people look at because everyone's going refi crazy right now. Like people have equity in their homes and, you know, it's a great time to get rid of mortgage insurance and all that other fun stuff. But if you're over 60 refinancing into, you know, a 30 year mortgage where you're still making a payment maybe not be the best choice, especially if you're not quite familiar with the terminology of a fixed rate versus uh, an adjustable rate mortgage uh, versus an interest only loan, which thank God they don't really do many of those anymore. But, you know, fixed rate is just basically your rate is the same for the life of your loan. And those can be great deals, especially if you, you know, had six or 8% and you can refinance into like two or three. It's fantastic. But if you're someone who, you know, is looking at doing uh, an adjustable rate mortgage, that means your interest rate can adjust every year. For some people, that worked out fantastic because interest rates went down. So their actual rate on their mortgage went down. But that usually doesn't work out. Like that's what caused a lot of the housing crash back in 2008 and seven was those rates adjusted, you know, from 8% to 13%. And a bunch of people lost their house because obviously you couldn't afford a $4,000 mortgage payment on a $150,000 home. So <laughs> like it's, it's Maybe something it's to be aware of. You don't yeah. want to gamble when you're over 60 on your finances. You want things to be a little bit more, um, if you're going to be on a fixed income, you might as well have a fixed rate. Yeah, totally agree with you. And it's like, what, what's it about at this point? Peace of mind and quality of life. Yep. Right? So it's like, if they get the fixed rate, and by the way, the, the right answer is the one that they're happy with. Fair enough, right? And so the fixed rate on a 30-year, maybe, it depends upon what your income is. But again, if you can have the reverse mortgage, not have to make a payment, what did you just in effect do? You just gave yourself an increase in your monthly retirement income, right? Probably about 1500 bucks a month. Yeah. It's kind I mean, of a no-brainer. <laughs> and a lot of clients, yes, absolutely. And a lot of people, like I just had a client that I, a couple months ago, lovely couple, but he's 86 and she's 74. He had a thir- just over a $1,300 a month social security check. Their house payment was just over 1200 Her social security check was like 598 That's basically what they were living on, plus food stamps, plus cutting coupons. Which when isn't enough. Had- yeah, and I did the reverse mortgage for them, got rid of their existing home, their first mortgage. They still have to pay taxes and insurance, fair enough. But, you know, gave them, I think it was like an over $900 a month increase in effect in their income because they principal interest is gone in a $27,000 check at closing. That's like hitting a mini lottery for that couple. You know, they're completely debt-free and they have cash in the bank they haven't been in this good a financial position for decades, you know? That's so, very good. Yeah. And, it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, as I'm understanding this, if, you, if you're if you most of the way through a traditional mortgage, so you have quite a lot of equity in your house, but you're still making mortgage payments. Mm-hmm. If you were to, if somebody in that position were going to come to you, Jim, 
and switch out their traditional mortgage for a reverse mortgage, they're at the appropriate age, then they're going to come out way ahead on monthly cash flow, not just because they obtain the income from that reverse mortgage, but on top of that income, they're getting rid of their traditional mortgage payment. You're basically flipping your mortgage payment upside down. If they were paying $1,300 a month in their standard mortgage payment, they're going to stop making that payment and instead be receiving a check for something slightly less than that uh, every month from there on. Is that right? Not necessarily. Yes. So let's, let's give you a couple examples. Job one is the reverse mortgage has got to be in first position. Okay? Yes. So by paying off the existing first mortgage, you no longer have to make the principal. You, you don't make a principal and interest payment. Don't yes. Have, right? So in effect, what I mean by that is, say you had $1,000 a month for principal and interest payment. You no longer have to pay that. So in yep. effect, what you have is an increase in your monthly income, retirement income of $1,000 a month. Yes. Now, generally speaking, you need about 50% equity in your okay. home. Sometimes, depending upon age, um, the younger you are, you might need a little bit more. If you hit about 80 years old, maybe like 45% equity. So it's, you'll need less equity. But if you have, I have a gentleman right now, 84 years old, his home just appraised for 360000 and he's paying off an existing reverse mortgage. He's getting another like $23,000 in cash. So if there's enough money, Mike, that you pay off your existing mortgage mm -hmm. and there's additional equity left over from that, you know, between the maximum loan amount on your reverse mortgage and paying off your existing uh, mortgage, then you can get that amount in cash. Okay. Or as a line of credit. Or as a line of credit. And or, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, are these arrangements typically a, a deal where people take that equity uh, at closing in a lump sum? Or are these monthly payments over the course, over the life of the reverse mortgage? How do you actually get that money back? Yes. All of the above, potentially. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is, again, got to be a first mortgage. Beyond that, um, the lady I talked to this morning, 76 years old, $250,000 home. If you want to, there's five ways to cash. Number one is you could take a little bit out. Say she wanted $20,000 out. Then the rest of it she could take in the form of a monthly income for life. You can just say, I don't want any cash. And in her case, she was eligible for like $726 a month for life. You could just say, I want to take, and there's, when you don't have a mortgage, then this is one of the good things that's changed in the rules between 13 and 17 when they made a lot of good changes is say, for example, you're eligible for a $100,000 loan because you don't have a mortgage. You can't get all of that at closing. They only give you 60% of that. And then a year later, the remaining 40% opens up and it's, it's a line of credit. So if you wanted to take some of it, all of it, none of it, if you take none of it, it continues to grow. So again, cash and a monthly income, you can have all of it in cash. You can get the 60% in cash now, 40% in a year. You can do a term. It's saying I'm 62. I don't want to, I want to retire. I don't want to take my social security until I'm 70 because it's growing 8% a year. So I'm going to set my reverse mortgage up. So I take a monthly income 
for eight years and then it stops. Any remaining equity left in my reverse mortgage, I'm now it's now a line of credit and it grows. So there's the beauty of it. It's like, I don't, I mean to educate and not confuse. And at the same time, the beauty of it is flexibility. What's right for you, Mr. and Mrs. Homeowner, that you can take a look at this and based on your situation, based on what you owe or don't owe or your needs or your goals, this can be set up so it provides you peace of mind and quality of life for however long your retirement is. Very interesting. So it sounds like really from a finance perspective, what's happening on the back end is the loan is figured as if the equity were taken out immediately. And then there are a bunch of options for putting an annuity on top of that, uh, doing all kinds of future value calculations, betting with the bank on future appreciation of the property. It's it's kind of like all of the other options. Uh, you know, In my line of work, we look at ways of structuring settlements for lawsuits when someone's going to come into, yeah. uh, is expected to come into a fairly large amount of money. It often makes sense to do a deal with a finance company to structure that payment uh, over a period of time. And the options are exactly what you're describing. It's basically any approach to amortization or uh, trading time value of money uh, with a finance company so that you can obtain your cash flow over whatever schedule is best for you. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, you know, it is a lot like structured settlements in that it can get really complicated. There are all kinds of very complicated arrangements that you can come up with for that. Uh, well, with I'm a mortgage payments. banker, not an attorney, so I just let the <laughs> computer tell me. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> the gist of it, where I was going with that is that uh, working with somebody like you and working with a financial planner, uh, this kind of a financial tool can be used to set up a really carefully optimized system for whatever your cash flow needs are. Oh my God, could not have Just said it better. Whatever is the best way to do it for you, yeah. it can be done that way. And yes. there are people who can help you get it set up that way. So from my line of work and what I deal with, you know, I deal with people who are in financial crisis. And so, you know, I've saved a lot of people, a lot of attorney's fees by just giving them practical advice and reverse mortgage is definitely one of those tools. So, you know, and doing an analysis for someone who has a lot of credit card debt, but, you know, is now unexpectedly retired. Um, a lot of people are going to start fitting into that category. You know, you may have uh, be equity rich and cash poor. And sometimes reverse mortgage is exactly the right tool to clean up your debt, clean up your mortgage and have no payments and be in excellent financial shape. So it's definitely worth exploring if you're, you know, over 62 and you have equity in your home, maybe instead of refinancing and continuing with the payment for 30 years, you take a look and see, you know, if you can start improving your cash flow. Actually, you brought up two excellent points, Rochelle. One is, and I just had a, a brain freeze here, the chapter 13 or chapter 11 bankruptcy, which one am I, does the person make payments on? Both. <laughs> That wasn't the answer I was looking for. There's chapter 7 and 13. You're probably thinking of 13. Okay, 7 wipes it out and 13 you make payments on, right? Right. Okay, if a person, I had a gentleman a few years ago that had medical issues, forced into a chapter 13, had made payments on it, and was equity rich in his home, but, you know, the bankruptcy happened because of medical. After a couple years of history of a 13, I can actually take, come in and work with 
uh, the bankruptcy judge and we can take them out of the 13 with a reverse mortgage. So that's, you know, and, and the other thing about this is like now with the COVID and you just don't know, but there's a lot of seniors that are saying, hey, that what I call a full-time, part-time job, I'm working 20 hours a week someplace is gone. And they're kind of forced into retirement and all of a sudden cash flow is an issue. I've talked to several seniors who are dipping into their savings and that's not a long-term strategy that's gonna work. And when you have you know, the, the equity in your home, why not let that work for you and keep your money invested and cash is king. That actually is a great segue into something that I wanted to bring up here. And that is a lot of people think of reverse mortgages as being primarily a tool for uh, retirement planning, financial management for older people who don't have a lot of other assets besides their home, where you're worried about monthly cash flow. You're worried about how you're going to pay for your expenses or maybe you're not worried, but at least you need to deal with that. You don't have a big pile of, of financial assets elsewhere. But that's not the only scenario where this can make sense. Um, in no. thinking about when it makes sense for someone who has more assets, a substantial retirement portfolio, for example, or even a non-retirement portfolio of equities, other investments, businesses, whatever it may be, in thinking about when it makes sense to hold equity in your own residential property versus when it makes sense to equity strip your own property, um, to not have your money there. Very often, you're going to find that if you've got substantial assets, maybe a mid-six-figure or substantially higher portfolio, it's not really in your best interest to own your house outright. It's really a whole lot better for you to not have very much equity in your home, uh, instead to borrow the money for your house at the lowest interest rate you can get and keep your capital in a more productive asset. At times, residential real estate markets have done very well, uh, better than equities. But most of the time, that's not true. Most of the time, you're better off and you get better returns with your assets being held in equities or other types of productive investments. And real estate is a somewhat lower performing, arguably lower risk, but definitely lower performing type of investment. If you have a good portfolio, it may make a whole lot of sense for you to go ahead if you're of the appropriate age and use a reverse mortgage to pull the equity out of your house and invest that money in a portfolio, uh, get the, the higher returns that you already are able to obtain there. And you might be wondering, why wouldn't I just get a regular mortgage? You've got plenty of cash flow coming out of your portfolio to pay your mortgage payments. Well, because your regular mortgage is going the wrong way. You're amortizing that down. Your payments include principal. You're raising the equity in your house. That's not helpful. And uh, that's payment. Why not invest that payment? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, how about an interest-only mortgage? Well, you can. But that has all of the disadvantages that we've mentioned before. And if you're in this position, you know very well what those disadvantages are. A reverse mortgage gives you all of these advantages that Jim was talking about. The protection basically being uh, flipping the risk compared to the bank in a traditional mortgage. You're protected by the mortgage insurance. You have the primary protections. You're going to end without equity in the property uh, or with less equity. But that's fine because your estate isn't going to have an issue paying that off. Uh, instead, 
you get all these protections and you get the advantage of borrowing back your own capital at low interest so you can get higher returns through other investments. Makes a whole lot of sense. Reverse mortgages are not just for people with cash flow difficulties. I have three clients that come to mind, two of which have over million dollar homes and did that strategy. One had a half million dollar home. And yep. let me add icing to the cake on that one, Mike. I love what you said. Totally agree. In addition to that, if you have, let's just say a million dollar home, if you have 5% appreciation on that, that's 50 grand a year, right? Simple interest, it'd be more than that compounding. But if, you don't, if you're borrowing money at three and a half percent, if you wake up a year, five years, 10 years from now, you're still going to have more equity when you sell yep. that home and you've got all of the benefits you just spoke about. Absolutely. All you're right. <laughs> when I said it, I said you're going to end without equity, but you're absolutely right. Assuming real estate performs fairly well and that there's still a positive differential between the rate you're paying on that mortgage, or I mean, you're not paying it, but the interest rate that is assigned to that mortgage versus the rate of appreciation of that real estate in this market, as long as there's a positive differential there, you actually will end your reverse mortgage with more equity than you started, even though you took that capital out and were investing it in other assets during the entire time. Yes. And by the way, HUD makes us show nationwide, not me, not as a lender, makes us show 4% appreciation. Now, if you wanted to see something specific, I can go in there and when we're talking, going through things, I can show that. But at the closing table, your documents will reflect a 4% appreciation on your value of your home. Craziness and awesome. The last point I wanted to touch on um, before I forget and before we wrap up is refinancing your reverse yeah. mortgage. <laughs> yes. And it's like, this is something that last year I would have never, I'd never even thought about. Nobody I don't think had um, because HUD makes us make sure that it is a financial benefit to the homeowner in order to refinance your existing reverse mortgage. What does that mean? That means if you refinance it, whatever your loan balance is, you have to get 5% more cash out than whatever that loan balance is. That's that's test number one. Test number two, I can only charge up to 20% of whatever that new loan balance is as fees to do your loan. So it has to pass both of those tests. In essence, you have to qualify to refinance your reverse mortgage. It's not like, you know, you wake up and say, wow, the rate's a little bit lower. I want to refinance it or I want to refinance my traditional mortgage and take cash out if I qualify. No, it's like you don't necessarily have a choice. You have a choice to look to see if you qualify. And that's something I happily do for anybody and everybody, you know, just if you have one and there's there's over a million of them that have been sold since their inception in 1989. And if I may, before I forget, If anybody wants to know more, I have written a book, Contact Rochelle and Mike, and I would be happy to send them a complimentary copy, okay? Very useful. When we were seeing people in person, I gave out so many of those books because it really is an excellent guide for understanding reverse mortgages. And I've known Jim for several years now and referred a lot of people his way who this just makes sense for. If it makes sense, it makes sense. And you need to know and deal with people who actually do this regularly. Reverse mortgages are not like traditional mortgages. So, you know, dealing with people who just dabble in them, you may not get the best results. So if you're going to look at a reverse mortgage, go with someone who's had experience doing them. 
Thank you, thank like you, thank Jim. you. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say for for people out there who are more financially sophisticated and are involved in other investing activity, you're going to be able to dig into this and understand exactly what's going on and do the math yourself. It is somewhat more complicated and it's kind of like learning to understand short transactions and the risk versus benefit and the different risk allocations in a short versus long position. If that means something to you, then this will mean something to you. But for everybody else who's not getting this, who doesn't really understand amortization, who has trouble understanding uh, the numbers on a mortgage statement, that's what professional advisors are for. You don't actually have to understand all of the details of this yourself in order to benefit from it. And that's unlike a lot of other investment activities. You shouldn't be investing in um, you know, commodities trading if you're not very familiar with commodities training, trading. But this isn't really like that because it is a highly regulated industry. And because people like Jim are required under the new rules to essentially act in your own best interest. They're not literally fiduciaries the way attorneys are uh, and certain financial advisors are, but the rules require that the deal be essentially acceptable to you. Um, so the pitfalls that used to exist with, with reverse mortgages and with uh, other types of transactions like this, those pitfalls have been regulatorily eliminated largely um, so that it is safe for those who are less financially sophisticated and may not be able to do all the math themselves and fully understand the dynamics of the transaction. You can still benefit from this and you'll be able to see the summaries and talk through it with your financial manager and with uh, a mortgage broker like Jim to understand what the result's going to be, uh, even though you may not be able to do all the math yourself. So don't be too intimidated by the complexity of the transaction uh, by not really understanding <laughs> fundamentally how it works. Uh, other people understand it for you. They can help you. Don't let that be an impediment to improving your financial situation if this is something that can help you. And if you've got parents that fit in that age group, you know, this is something to start considering as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or grandparents. Yes. Yep. And grandparents and great grandparents for that matter. You're yeah. getting younger. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the way, Mike, just to add to what we've talked a lot about the financial domain of this, it's tax-free money. Interesting. I did not realize that because when you paid it in to the equity of the house, that was post-tax already. So this is not income and there's no tax burden associated with it. Correct. Sweet. Is there ever a capital gains issue if the house is appreciated? You didn't realize it, right? That's that's capital gains. That's a separate conversation. The money <laughs> that you get from a reverse mortgage is tax-free. It's the same as a traditional mortgage. You're borrowing money from your home. Ah, because that's not really income. It's a loan. So then the, the capital gains issue would occur when the estate sells the property at the end. Yeah. Then it's yeah. you know based on the value and the basis of yeah. your home and whether or not the capital gains is true. Yes. Talk to yep. a CPA. Yeah. Anyway, yes. so Jim, why don't you tell our audience how they can reach you? 928-225-7418 or Jay Hostler, J-H-O-S-T-L-E-R at hightechlending.com. Have any questions, have any concerns, love the opportunity to speak with you. And if you are looking for a copy of that book that he's got, that's again, you can email him at jhostler at hightechlending.com. That's Hostler with a T. Do we have a thing we can put up that's got nope. his contact info? Didn't okay. do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today's show was brought to you by Xfirm, helping people recover from financial crisis one day at a time by offering credit counseling, credit repair, and debt resolution services. You can find us online at xfirmlaw.com or you can call us at 480 480- 
305-0603. But to give you a show recap, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> we covered the coronavirus face mask, card exemption, exemption scam, scam. Uh, identity theft and how to resolve it, business credit. You can check it online at nav.com and masks. Yes, the government can actually make you wear them. Let's not like test that water and make them do it. And of course, traditional versus reverse mortgages. I think the key takeaways are it's a great product worth considering. Yes, it has a place and it's a pretty big place. It's a real option that ought to be on the table and people ought to be thinking about it. Yes. Mike and Rochelle, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. It was a great conversation and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Look forward (laughs) to it, guys. I'm Mike Poulton with the law firm Poulton & Arroyan. We provide business law services, litigation, estate planning, uh, and a variety of other services uh, to clients here in the city of Phoenix. You can find us online at www.pnlaw.pro. That's P like Paul, N like Nancy, L-A-W.pro. Or you can call us at 602-427-5613. And I'm Rochelle Colton, your favorite consumer rights attorney at X-Firm. And thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.